1: We're glad you found us. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
2: Welcome to Truth Transforms. Join in for spiritually enlightening discussion and the practical application of new thought principles. Here's your host, Rev. Galen McDowell. Welcome to Truth Transforms. I am your host, Galen McDowell. I'm the executive minister and the senior assistant minister at Christ Universal Temple in Chicago, Illinois, where the Reverend Dr. Derek B. Wells is the senior minister and the Reverend Dr. Johnny Coleman is the founder. Uh, We're in the midst of a series titled Black Lives Matter. And it's a new thought response for justice. And I've been bringing on friends of mine who are powerful advocates Of and for justice, and I have two powerful advocates of justice today: the Reverend Lola Wright and the Reverend David Alexander. Hello, Reverend Lola and Reverend David. How are you doing today?
3: Good to be with you. You Hello,
2: doing well. Beautiful, beautiful. Before we uh, before we start with the questions, because we have a lot of powerful questions today, and we're going to be talking about uh, white America and how white America can support Rachel. Uh, Justice and New Thought's response to racial injustice and its responsibility to produce a world that works for everyone. So, uh, Reverend Lola, before we get started, could you let people know what you're doing, what you're up to and how they can get in contact with you if they decide to do so?
0: Yeah, these days I'm doing a fair amount of coaching and consulting with organizations and individuals, and I can be found at com. I love social media, so you can check me out at Lola P. Wright on all of your social media channels. And I've just kicked off um, session one of a 21-week series of a body of work that I founded called Normal White People. Another seven-week session will be rolling out in the next few weeks, and it's really a conversation for white identified people to develop their racial consciousness. And we're doing this very intentionally between now and election Tuesday.
2: Beautiful, beautiful. Reverend David, how can people get in contact with you? What are you up to? So if people want to connect with you after the podcast, they can do so.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I am uh, currently the spiritual director at Spiritual Living Center of Atlanta and you can find us on the web and Facebook and all those great places, uh, slca.com, or just look for Spiritual Living Center Atlanta. And that's probably the best way. Uh, I also have a, a podcast of my own called New Thoughts with David Alexander, uh, where I just, just recently uh, had a great uh, two-part series with Reverend Moe Leright. Uh, so you can look for that on Spotify, Google, um, Stitcher, etc. all those great places. And um, keep up with me on Facebook and all that good stuff.
2: Okay, beautiful, beautiful. So let's get to it. So all of we've met through this collective uh, movement called the New Thought Movement through year Through the years, uh, Reverend David, I met you years ago at a New Thought conference downtown. I was with uh, Bishop Carlton Pearson, and I, and when I met Reverend Lola through uh, working and supporting her work as the spiritual director at uh, Bodie Spiritual Center. So we all go way back. And Mm -hmm. when we start talking about white America's response to racial injustice, um, uh, how do you feel as though this work needs to be started? And what are some of the demonstrable uh, goals we need to see to know that we're making... Um, a, a, a really good impact in changing how we see life. Uh, Reverend Lola, if you could start, please.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think a, the first thing that comes to my mind is, um, you know, unfortunately in this country, we just do a really poor job of understanding the genesis of this country. And we sort of get it like at a very high level. And, you know, a couple times a year, there's a movie that comes out about black trauma this country but like that's sort of we have sort of a hollywood understanding of american history and i think that all human beings and particularly white identified human beings have a deep responsibility to have an accurate accounting of history and quite frankly i don't know that you can get that through our existing history books in institutions and so it really it takes some responsibility to seek out books like Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Davis or Ain't I a Woman by Bell Hooks or Asada by Asada Shakur to really disrupt the patterned and conditioned uh, interpretation of the establishment of this country and then the ongoing policies and positions. So, number one, we got to get like accurate accounting and history of the origin and establishment of what we now call the United States of America. And then... I think white-identified people really have to get honest with the ways systemic racism occupies our being and how it orients our walk on the planet. Those are like first two moves towards sobriety.
2: Okay, beautiful, beautiful. Reverend David, um, same question?
3: yeah that's um it's a great question and i think lola's right on you know it's over 100 years ago i think it was henry james that said we live in a uh hotel um, mentality society meaning we check in uh, we check out we don't really care who uh who who makes the bed or who cleans the place as long as it's done by the time we get back Uh, and he actually left uh, and you know, went over to Europe and and took his children because uh, he he and he later came back. But but he spoke a lot very critically about that. That was a hundred years ago, uh, and so I think the new version of that uh, Lola just coined their Hollywood understanding because uh, we we do we have a short attention span, um, and, and and so I guess what I would say particularly to white America right now uh, is you know uh, get used to being uncomfortable. Uh, this isn't going away anytime soon and we have to, to stretch our muscle uh to have the capacity for the long game. And uh, uh to do to do that education work there are, uh although Lolo accurately pointed out, not necessarily in our official history books, there are tremendously good uh published works that, that can enlighten you and tell you about the, the people's history of the United States and what has really happened. Uh, and then get get used to being uncomfortable because what we're talking about when we talk about systemic, I don't think – right now that's a buzz phrase a little bit, you know, the word systemic, systemic racism and oppression, et cetera. Systemic means that it's so baked into the system that the system cannot survive without it. So I, th- I think we need to take a really deep breath and understand what we're talking about when we use the word systemic. And so if we're going to say, if I'm going to say as a white person, I'm committed to dismantling systemic racism in America, that's not just the popular coin phrase of the day. That means I'm committed to completely dismantling the systems that we currently live in. The system cannot currently operate without racism in it. So we have to deconstruct the entire thing and rebuild it. That's no small task. So we, we need
2: to <laughs> indeed really get sober uh, to, to what we're up against here. Beautiful, beautiful. So thank you. So uh, last week, a uh, week and a half ago, it was uh, a minister, an evangelical minister, and I'm not picking on evangelicals. I'm just using this as a, this actually happened. It was on the news where a, a minister actually, a white minister said that uh white americans should look at slavery as as a blessing to create their lifestyle versus a burden or a problem i i don't want to misquote him but do you all remember that conversation that was on the news that i can't remember the name of the minister
3: yeah. and oh yes it, oh yes it, he, he's here it, in atlanta
2: <laughs> he oh he's in atlanta oh my god i didn't know he was mm-hmm. in atlanta so uh you know reverend david if you can Maybe address that and then Lola pick pick up from there, because obviously I'm sure you had to deal with that head on Um, this conversation around not even wanted to acknowledge and make. Yeah, he was saying white blessing versus white privilege and Mm -hmm. just how integrated that is. Could you pick up on that a little bit, please?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was just complete foolishness. Um, and he later tried to backtrack on it, of course, but it's, um, it's a perfect example of, of whiteness, right? We, we and white maleness in that we try to dominate and, and recast or re narrate, uh, or control the, the narrative of what's happening, and to do so in a way that makes us feel more comfortable, more palatable, more more at ease uh, about what's happening, so that we look like we're uh, caring and compassionate. But, but in order to do that, we have to recast the whole thing so that our little white selves Uh, are are comfortable in the process and it's it's completely ridiculous it's completely insulting to people of color uh it's insulting to any version of christianity uh evangelical or not um we don't need to to come up with new terms to in order to make white people feel comfortable in this process um we got we need to just step up to the plate and own the hard truths
2: um of, of what we're facing here a beautiful. Reverend Lola, could you jump in on the white blessings versus white privilege conversation?
0: Yeah. I mean, I didn't, honestly, I didn't pay too close attention to that just because there's so much nonsense that one could choose to indulge in. Um, yeah. and you know, I, I sort of feel like some, like not to, not to undermine the like destruction of someone saying crazy stuff like that, but it's like, I also think there's a way in which that stuff gets really like, you know, it sort of amps up the drama and I am just constantly monitoring um, any tendency to get sucked into the drama. Cause here's what I know to be true. Like when we get involved in this conversation of race in America It's designed to occur inside of drama to fatigue you and to take you out and specifically for white identified people to then anesthetize, numb out and uh, basically go back to sleep. And so I'm very, very mindful. Like, I'm not going to participate in this conversation at the level of drama because Mm -hmm. I have a a commitment to being in this conversation for the long haul. And if I get sort of like... um, occupied by the drama of it it will co-opt my being and will not enable me to be um, sustainable in my practice so i you know i don't need a whole lot of media hits to tell me that racism in america is robust alive well thriving i mean it's good business in this country. Even a soundbite like that, that's really good business for lots of people. And so I, I don't really have a willingness to go too deep down those rabbit holes. Um, you know, I want to I pay more attention to um, the ways that I can influence policy, the way I, ways I can in, uh, influence institutional power. Um, You know, even the work that I do with normal white people, if it's only about, you know, helping 30 people, uh, you know, become more mindful human beings, that's not enough for me. Like that's not that that is too slow a game and it doesn't have the impact I desire. So if the 30 people who are currently in my normal white people course are not deliberately and proactively looking for ways that they have access and influence at the institutional level where they can deconstruct systems and structures of oppression, then it's like, it's really a waste of my time, quite frankly. Like, I, I know that it makes us feel good, like, oh, we're waking white people up. But if it doesn't actually yield systemic institutional disruption and change, it's not, I have I have kids at home. I can take care of. I don't need to take care of grown human beings in that way.
2: Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So this is a conversation I think that is really important. Uh, the next question, and whoever wants to jump in on it first can do so. There are conversations that that are had by people who have relatives uh, in white America, where the statements are said, the the you know the anti black the anti-semitic the homophobic the whatever statements that tend to down and demean people and you know it, it's it's almost like an archie bunker type situation it and it gets said and it's so normal because no one ever addresses it nothing there's no healing not only for that individual as a possibility but there's also no healing for the people that are also around it so how are how do you all teach people how to have those tough conversations with their loved ones? People who have supported them, fed them, put them through school many times. Sometimes they're married to the people, and then this other side shows up. And sometimes it's just, it's, it's casual many times, but it but but it's still very effective in maintaining. Uh, systemic racism. How do you all address teaching people how to have those tough conversations?
0: Well, I mean, I literally do role playing with people because most often, white identified people around the conversation of race in America primarily freeze or faint. So they literally leave their body. So they so they like disassociate or they become paralyzed. There's a smaller percentage of people that fight, um, but, but, you know, we have to, my experience is we have to help, I have to help, I feel compelled to help white identified people become comfortable having the conversation of race in America. It is by design that white people have a discomfort in having the conversation, because if you have an incapacity to have the conversation, the whole system can remain intact. And so, you know, some of it is literally just like it, in the courses I facilitated, it's literally just like, we're going to practice. Your uncle just said that thing at Thanksgiving. What do you then do? And, you know, one of the things that I oftentimes tell people is, look, you do not have to be a, a scholar to be able to respond to these things. Like, you can start by just saying, hey, you know what? When I heard you say that thing, I noticed I feel like a pit in my stomach. I, I feel like sick and I, I'm noticing I feel angry I'm not I'm, I'm I'm not resonating with that or I'm not feeling that you know you don't have to have it all figured out why it doesn't feel good but it, we could at least start by saying that doesn't feel good over here that's one part right and then another part is and this requires a little bit more mastery but to actually exercise curiosity you know I actually saw this Last night on Facebook, someone who I have hundreds of people in common with in the New Thought community. I do not know this human. And he posted an inflammatory meme, um, you know, that had sort of these racist undertones. And all of the commentary in response to it was like, I can't believe you put this out here. and And it's like, that's precisely the response he's wanting. He's wanting you to become inflamed or to ignore, and probably more inflamed. And so I just wrote on there, hey Oscar, um, I'm curious to know what you are wanting your audience to know about as you post this, because I'm, I'm very curious. Like, it's so, to me, it's sort of cowardly to post a meme but not actually articulate your position. I mean, that's sort of the lazy, lazy practice that we've gotten into in relationship with social media and sound bites. So I want to actually engage him. Tell me more. Tell me more. And I suspect, and I've had this happen many times, where this person begins to, to tell on themselves, and then they do the work for me. Mm. And then it's like, it makes it real easy, actually. It's like A plus B equals C. I'm not going to get myself all worked up to the best of my ability. I want to, to, you tell me, tell me how your thought processes are oriented. And then it becomes like mathematics.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Reverend David, you want to jump in on that, please? well I, I just
3: think that's such a brilliant response and you know the 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 curiosity of asking well you know tell me more about that why is it that you why did you say that what you know where does that come from it turns it back on them and 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 requires them to uh explain themselves as opposed to you know getting upset i can't believe you said that or you know whatever it is um That, I think, is such a a, a more useful um, uh, approach because when we attack people uh, and and make them feel shame, shame shuts down all opportunity for learning. You can't learn if you are in shame. And so I know, in fact, I know some people in the New Thought community who are... um, you know, ferocious uh, advocates for equality, but their approach is to shame people that they see making mistakes or, or blatantly doing, you know, racist things um, uh, consciously or unconsciously. And so their approach is just to attack. And what happens is, you know, that person feels shame. It shuts down all opportunity for learning. You're not going to get anywhere except that you're going to look righteous in the conversation. Uh, So if that's what you're going for, then congratulations. (laughs) But I think curiosity is a much better approach and asking them to explain themselves because the bottom line is for we're talking, you know, going back to family and friends. Most of our family and friends probably don't understand why. They think the way they think, why they they think that joke is funny or that that correlation or that you know how many how many times have I learned about some some phrase some uh, you know um, that has racial meanings, but we use them all the time, right we use. Uh, I'm trying to think of some right now. (laughs) I'm drawing a blank. But, you know, but I've gone out and done that education. I've Googled, I don't know, where where does this phrase come from? Where does rule of thumb come from? Where does, you know, things that we use kind of a commonplace language? And you go, oh, that has a racial undertone. That has a racial. Oh, I see. I I didn't realize that. And that's the case with our family members, too. We don't we don't often really consciously understand why we think the way we think. So inviting them to question uh, or examine that uh, through curiosity, I think is a a really effective approach.
2: Beautiful, beautiful. So, you know, one of the things, because I know both of you all, I know that uh, both of you all have biracial children. And when you see the circumstances that sometimes happens with, as we would say in the black community, having to have to talk to your children, you mm-hmm. know, if the police stop you. If this situation happened, this circumstance, how you need to act, how you need to say whatever you need to say. So you can just get home and fight, live to fight another day. And this is not me throwing all police under the bus, but as a black man, I know that my mama had that talk with me. My father had that talk with me and both sets of my grandparents had that talk with me. Mm-hmm. How do you all process uh, working with having biracial children and knowing that the system is potentially set up, not potentially set up, to deal with your children differently than they would deal with you?
1: Yeah,
0: I mean, well, you know, uh, Reverend Galen, that my son attended a training at Christ's Universal Temple around how to respond in yeah. such circumstances. Yeah. So, I mean, that's how. that's how you know, organized, one has to be around it is, you know, hey, as a black identified man, there is a way that you're going to be interacted with in the society. And so this faith community has actually organized the training. It's like beyond the talk, you know, it's like, so, so, you know, and I have deep appreciation for Christ Universal Temple's commitment to doing that work. Um, Yeah. I mean, for us, it's like, this is like a, it's not like, a talk, it's like the talk. It's like, it's like we're constantly in a conversation around race in America, because it's so a part of um, the American experience, which is why it's very odd to me when people are, quite frankly, talking about much else. And that might be just because I'm like, I don't know how we can keep not talking about this in a meaningful, robust way among dominant culture when it's so in the space, you know, so We have a lot, we just have conversations about this at every dinner Um, and not from an oppressive position, not such that like we're fatiguing ourselves, but, you know, in in the spirit of like critical thinking and analysis and rigorous honesty. You know, what's also true in our household is, you know, I have two two children that are biracial and then I have two children that are white and my white children are 11 and eight. And so they are exposed to conversations and have been you know, their entire, uh, childhood. And that, that, part, you know, creates a whole other layer of complexity because they don't have the same capacity to understand the nuance of the conversations that we're have, having. And so we're having these very sort of fierce conversations around race in America at the level of adults. And recently my eight-year-old son, you know, came, came to say goodnight to me and he just started weeping. And he was like, you know mom when I heard us talking about you know that guy at the dinner table and all the things that he had done it just made me think like I'm white and I must be that guy you know and then it's like okay great so Mm. that's how from his little his little brain that's how he uh, interpreted the the sound bites of what he heard and so then it's like okay we're talking about systems we're not talking about people and people play out systems and you know so there are there are many talks. And, you know, as much as we say, you know, have the talk with your black son or your black daughter, I'm like, if white families are not having a comparable talk about the responsibility that their white children have to um, interrupt these patterns, then this is is not going to work.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Reverend David, we have about a minute before we have to go to the to break, And I want to make sure you have the full opportunity to answer this question properly. So let me just give my quick commercial and then when we t- come back from the break, you can jump right in. So uh, Christ Universal Temple ha- has many ways in which you can stay in contact with us. We have our live stream only service right now happening. At 10:30 a.m. Central Time at our website, which is cu.temple.org, our YouTube page, which is also CU Temple, CU in the word Temple together, or our Facebook page, Christ Universal Temple. You can also check us out on Facebook Live at Christ Univer- well, on Christ Universal Temple's Facebook page for Facebook Live daily inspiration lessons Monday through Friday at noon Central Time. Uh, obviously this podcast Reverend Wells has a Facebook show called Temple Talks you can look up that on Wednesdays at 7pm Central Time and we have a consciousness building call at 6pm on Thursday Central Time we'll be right back with Truth Transforms
3: Practical Spirituality. Positive Messages. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world.
2: Welcome back to Truth Transforms with your host, Rev. Galen McDowell. Welcome back to Truth Transforms. I have the Rev. Lola Wright and the Rev david alexander on the show today we're talking about black lives matter and white america's response to social justice and how new thought can help create a world that works for everyone so uh reverend david before we left off you were up to talk about the question about how do you um how do you work within the paradigm of uh, a, a world that Sees your biracial child differently than it sees you, and and what are the conversations that you have? Maybe with, even with your wife, because I know your your child is younger. Uh, how does that process work for you? hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, we have we have two sons. We have my wife's firstborn and then my firstborn, uh, ages fifteen and three. And so we're uh, we're always I'm always examining uh, life through the paradigm of each of them and. And that age gap, you know, there's there's the conscious awareness of the world that is ready to receive my 15-year-old son and in another year or two, and he's got a learning permit and a license and, you know, extends beyond the boundary of of perceived safety that we can keep him in um yeah absolutely you have that conversation and as lola mentioned it's it's a daily conversation it's it's at every meal it's every news story it's a constant conversation um and then in the back of my mind I'm constantly aware about what actions I am taking how I'm involved in the world and how that might uh, affect uh, uh, hopefully, positively, the world that will receive my three-year-old uh, when he is fifteen or sixteen, um, and and so I'm I kind of measure my my activities by that uh, window of time to see uh, what difference I can make. But the thing I want to say about the conversation is that 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 um, you know families like ours, I think right now are are in a place of of. Um, I guess uneasiness, I speak for myself, our family is in a place of uneasiness uh, around where we are right now because the conversation is wholly inadequate, right? So the conversation is, oh, make sure you comply, make sure you do this, make your best behavior, do what the officer says, you know, all of those things. And the bottom line is my 15-year-old son is looking back at me and saying, "Uh, George Floyd complied. George Floyd was following the rules. George Floyd was handcuffed. George Floyd was in the custody of the officers and in their trust and care. And he died anyway. You know, uh, R- Rashad yeah. Brooks ran. Uh, so, so what's the difference? One complied, one didn't. Uh, and my, my 15-year-old son is looking at me like, don't tell me to comply and follow the rules. It, it, it's wholly inadequate. So to Lola's point we need to have be having a much bigger conversation particularly with our white children um and, and all of us as communities about what are we doing to address the systemic issues because it is not about training our uh, our our black children to to be uh, polite and conciliatory uh, in the presence of police that that is wholly inadequate
0: I also think it's it's uh, sorry, I also think it's, it's problematic to, like, rest on, like, white people having brown and black children as some kind of solution. Like, white people have to have an investment in this conversation and in this disruption, whether they are ever in relationship with a black or brown person. Mm-hmm. Like, Correct. this has yeah. to be a commitment by white-identified people because uh, it's normal. It's actually, it's, it's actually abnormal to not be committed to this conversation. Now it's become normalized, but actually it's very abnormal. You know, and this is again, like my son was playing bags or cornhole, depending on where you live, in front of our house last weekend. And, you know, it was him and, and his two, two friends, both black men and a, a police officer man slowly rolled by and my husband came to the back because I was on the grill and he was like something really weird just happened like this police just rolled by and interacted with the guys and you know anybody who knows me knows I have a very strong mama bear energy so in fairly short order I approached my son and I said can you please tell me what happened because you know I have no problem going down to the police department and he said well I did not feel harassed But in the 13 years we have lived on this block, I have never had an experience of a police officer feeling compelled to be so friendly to me. And that's actually, this is is what I want everybody to get. Like, we are so perverted as a culture that we are acting abnormally normal you understand what I'm saying? So it's like now all of a sudden you have white identified people who are so awkwardly trying to be normal because there's such an like an emerging awareness of how abnormal our culture is and it's like what's that about you know like what what's going on in me that all of a sudden I'm sort of like manufacturing a pleasant interaction with a black person today. Like, that's very weird. That's weird. What, 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 what should be normal is abnormal. And that's something yeah. we need to get to the bottom of.
2: Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I do want to open up the the lines for calls because we have about 20 minutes left. So if anyone does want to call in and ask uh, Reverend Lola or Reverend David a question, you can call in at 816-251-3555, 816-251-3555. And I'm just going to encourage you to call in, I know, because conversations around race can be very interesting, and I know that sometimes people might not want to be committed on a podcast that'll go everywhere to, to asking a question or feeling uncomfortable. But I'm going to encourage you, if you have a question or something that you're pondering, whether you're any race that you feel as though this conversation needs to be had and you have a question that you feel as though needs to be answered or just a perspective. We're not saying we have the answers. What we're saying is we're willing to engage the conversation and see where it goes. Yeah. So yeah. if you have a question, please call in at 816 251 Three five five five. Now, um, you know one of my one of my friends, um, one of my best friend's little sister. Uh, actually, we do have a caller, so I'm a, I'm gonna pause on what I was about to say so I can bring this person in. Um, hello, is it Kareen? Uh, is that how you pronounce your name?
1: Yes.
2: Hi, Kareen. Uh, you're from Ohio, I believe. I see on the on the location. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for calling in. Do you have a question for Reverend Lola and Ray, Reverend David? I
1: do. Um, I've been watch, I've been listening to your series, and I've called in a few times. And uh, my question is, is that I'm I don't know. I'm trying to phrase it the correct way so it doesn't seem antagonistic. But uh, this whole black identified is kind of triggering for me as a black woman. I don't really understand what that. Means I understand when we're talking about um, gender identify. I'm totally for that. I get that. But when you're talking about race, especially as a a black person who has (laughs) grown up in this country and has experienced, you know, everything that you all are talking about, when you start talking about black identify, that seems to water down our experience or make it so that it is an experience that someone who is other than black can also identify with. And I feel like the only people who can identify with <clears throat> being black are people who have the entire experience. So can you help me understand? Yeah, I'll,
0: I'll just say what's true for me. Um, you know, when I use the word identified, it's it, to connote, like, how the world interacts with you or perceives you. So that's sort of one piece. And I typically use it more in the context of white-identified people. So, for example, my normal white people work is for white-identified people. Now, I've had a couple people who um, are of mixed race but the world experiences them and interacts with them as a white person. And so they have a particular experience that also involves like living as if they're white identified. So they can sort of pass or live in the world, You know, maybe you know, like their, their dad is white and their mom is Filipino or something like that. So that's sort of the, the context that I typically use it in is how is the world interacting with you and there's a particular lens through which the world is interacting with you. The um, other thing that feels important just for me is to keep, re, re, you know, keep educating human beings on the understanding that race is a social construct that was manufactured to divide human beings. It is completely made up. And that doesn't mean that at this point we're deep in it. And at this point, we're deep in this social construct that was manufactured and then labeled upon people. And so for me, it's, just, it's it's important that people realize it was made up. Racism is actually quite new. Colorism is old. Anti-Blackness is old. But racism, where from a policy perspective, we created um, these distinctions that said some people are subhuman. That's new That's new, you know, 400-plus years new. So that's, for me, how it was. I don't know if that's helpful um, or if that provides more context.
1: Well, I mean, I understand that race is a construct. I I understand all of that, the history of it and all of that. But I I just feel like we're in it. (laughs) This is is Mm -hmm. my life every single day. And Mm -hmm. especially with everything that's going on now where – You know, black people are exerting uh, their power to purchase or their power in all these different spaces. Even though it was constructed to be something that is to put us down, it's ours now. And I don't want Mm -hmm. it um, watered down or diluted or anything. I want to stand firmly in it. And Mm -hmm. so when you say things like black identified, it sounds like... um, you're trying to and I don't mean you personally, but it's like mm-hmm. it's trying to um to water it down or to make it kind of, you know, loosey goosey. It's not really important. Mm-hmm. It is important when mm-hmm. people are suffering and the things that they've gone through. So anyway, I hope that puts some context in what? what I'm talking about
0: yeah and i think that's a really important what i hear you saying and please tell me if this feels accurate i mean i i feel the same way when i hear white people say african-american it's sort of like most often used as some kind of polite way of saying black or something like that Um, and so i think to me what's most important is what is it that what is there something that you're not trying to call out here by using that language. And I think that, you know, I'm like, yeah, I, I, that is the conversation we should be having. What, what are we masquerading here to be politically correct or politically palatable or, um, you know, the thing is that in my experience with white people, they don't necessarily understand that race is a social construct. And so Mm -hmm. there's a way in which black people understand that And white people don't understand that always, and so I'm, you know, I am in a uh, constant sort of conversation with white people to educate on that.
1: Okay, so what you're saying is that what you're saying those things your conversations more targeted to a white community than to a person like myself.
0: Yeah, I mean, I used to just a little context on my background. I spent much of my adult life, basically hiding out in communities of color and um, writing off white people. I mean, I basically was like, I can't with these people, you know, and and one of the sort of very sobering moments for me was the Wednesday after the election of Donald Trump and watching the sheer shock of white people in response to that election. I was shocked by the shock. That, that you know, there was such surprise that that could happen in this country. And I was like, what? Like, how could you be that surprised? This is the nature of this country. And so in, in, in that moment, I really realized I, it does not work for me to not take re- 100% responsibility for being in very, very proactive, assertive conversations with white people around deconstructing this. And not just when I get frustrated because something happens and someone says something stupid. And, and then, you know, other than that, me avoiding white people like that is not a solution that does not work that, you know, and so um, I sort of in 2016 got very explicit in systematizing conversations with white people around race because if someone like me is not doing that, like, I don't know who's going to do it.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. So Corrine, I'm going to jump in here because I do want to make sure if anybody else has an opportunity to have a question, I want to open the floor for that to happen. Uh, And I would say without a shadow of a doubt, first of all, thank you for the support and listening and thank you for asking a really tough question. And, and I think that part of the process is when things are going on, we don't address them. And, And that language is something that, you know, gives us an opportunity to to reevaluate because one of the things that I do know about language, and of course I know them as friends, and Lola's like a sister to me, when we have conversations where it allows us to contemplate, then it gives us an opportunity to evolve or change or say, well, that's not my intention. Let Let me make sure I explain what I mean when I use the term, and this gives us an opportunity to to have a greater and larger conversation in respect and harmony versus agitation. So thank you so much for that conversation and question.
1: Mm-hmm. Well,
2: thank you. Thank you. Right. So um, I want again, want to give people an opportunity if you want to call in at 816-251-3555. We only have about 10 minutes. 816-215, uh, excuse me, 251, 816-251. Three five five five. So I was going to ask a, a, another question, but I'm not going to ask the question I was going to ask because I want to deal a little bit with our movement, uh, the new thought movement. Uh, you know, the the I, you know, every, anybody that knows me knows, that I'm a real serious purist when it comes to new thought. And I also recognize that I'm not a fundamentalist of anybody. And when I look back, especially in my faith tradition, coming out of the Universal Foundation for a Better Living, or being a part of it, um, when the founder of our foundational brand of New Thought came through the New Thought movement, it was obviously she had to deal with a lot of racism and unity. And when you're dealing with the New Thought movement, um, and do you see? Uh, quote-unquote privilege in the way that it is presented to people and maybe the blinders that leaders put on it maybe not intentionally but unconsciously because it's the paradigm that we were given uh reverend david could you start with it please absolutely and i I think we could dedicate a, a whole show to breaking
3: this down i was um um, uh, on a, a recent call with with uh, Bishop Yvette Flunder, in which uh, her and I were discussing a little bit the the, um, the commonalities of the Word of Faith Pentecostal uh, hands-on healing movement, um, her lineage and the New Thought lineage, and she had said something that just kind of blew my hair back. She said, uh, "You know, these movements have." Uh, common common ancestry and and obviously a common root uh, in in the principle that they believe in, uh, but they are and and developed along parallel lines in terms of uh, time period in American history, but what distinguishes them from each other is privilege. And I thought, you know, it was like ringing a bell. I was like, oh, my God, I would, I never would have phrased it like that uh, previously. But I think that's absolutely accurate. You look at the, the, both the Unity Movement and the Religious Science Movement as the, 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 the core, uh, you know, aspects of the New Thought Movement. And they both are, are, are drenched in this, this, this thing called privilege. And yet what the principle of the movement is a principle of liberation. And so what Reverend Ike did with it, what Father Divine did with it, I mean, there are people of color who who made it, you know, uh, articulated the liberation theology aspect. But if your only exposure to it is in a predominantly white congregation, in a fairly middle class, upper class, wealthy community community, um, uh, which most people, that's their new thought exposure, uh, then it very much can be, perhaps not intentionally, but certainly can be presented, uh, and portrayed as a, as a movement of privilege. It's a privilege to, uh, to, to have a theology that says, Everyone has responsibility over their own consciousness and I don't need to think about the suffering of the world. I just need to monitor my own thinking um, and and get a better car and a better job and a better relationship and a better whatever. Uh, and, and anyone else who's not able to do that, obviously, there's something wrong with their consciousness. I mean, that's kind of the shallow end of the pool byproduct of uh, the, the presentation of a theology of privilege. Um, Obviously, I think the truth of who, what we are is much deeper than that, much more liberating than that. Uh, But we have to be willing to present it that way. Well, I think
0: people miss, yeah, I think people miss the application of the principles at the level of the collective. So, like, we we get sort of, like, myopic, and we're, like, talking about only the way these principles are demonstrated in an individual's life. But it's like, well... um, let's see, about 14 million white people and 2.6 million black people report using an illicit drug. Five times as many white people are using drugs as black people, yet black people are sent to prison for drug offenses at 10 times the rate of white people. Now, Mm -hmm. that is in the consciousness of white people. So how, like, that's your demonstration. So you've Mm -hmm. demonstrated uh, severe inequities in our judicial system. So what's going on in your consciousness that you created that?
3: Exactly. Uh
0: You know what I mean? Like there's this very adolescent application of the principles that is very, that actually is very consistent with whiteness, which is highly Mm -hmm. individualistic, um, Mm -hmm. you know, out for self. I also don't believe that that was the essence of the teachings at all and right. it's been sort of the perversion of the teachings that is completely inside of hypercapitalism and um, doesn't actually extrapolate well. So, like, you, it, you know, you have to look at all of this. So the state of the country from a statistical basis is a reflection of consciousness. And yes. how did you create that? Mm-hmm. How has the new, like, I would like to ask, how has the the new thought movement created? How is the new thought movement responsible?
2: When we were speaking at the uh, the Idea Place on Michigan, uh, uh, six hundred South Michigan. I can't remember the name of the place, but we were down there speaking to some children. Not children, young people from Columbia College when we had the panel. Mm -hmm. You invited me to come speak. Mm -hmm. And and I Mm -hmm. mentioned on that panel that what I consider old school new thought is, if you want your block clean, everybody goes out and clean, and they clean up in front of their own home. I said, a more evolved new thought is, let me clean up in front of my house, and then let me help my neighbor. Because if my house is clean and the rest of the block is dirty, my block is dirty. So (laughs) we have a collective responsibility to producing the the results we desire, and I do think that surface new thought is what I call that brand of Mm -hmm. it doesn't make a difference what I do or how I do it, uh, unethical new thought. Uh, I I, I jokingly call it Darth Vader new thought because Darth Vader understands Mm -hmm. how to use the force. Right, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> we right. might have to come back the three of us just to have a conversation about a New Thought and Darth Vader because it's mm-hmm. because it applies across the board, because he was the chosen one in the story. But he was the one who allowed the other things in his consciousness to corrupt his ability mm-hmm. to produce. The Force with ethics, love, grace, harmony, and well-being for everyone else. It's it's an interesting conversation, and um, uh, Bill Arid, Reverend Bill Arid, actually told me that that uh, somebody that knew George Lucas said that he got the concept of the Force from the book The Science of Mind. Mm. <laughs> so, and 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 I don't know if you know Bill. I know David. You know him. He's old old school science yeah. of mind. So, so, you know, these are the conversations I think we need to have. We've unfortunately run out of time. We're going to have to do this again down the line. But I want to thank you all both for coming on and having the hard conversation. I want to thank the caller for calling in with a tough question that allows us to think and evaluate how things land. And I just want you all to just share this. If you all are listening to this, whether you listen to it live or you're listening to it later on, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or whatever, make sure that you share it. Let people know about it and start having some conversations that can help transform and heal our nation and world. God bless you all and we'll be with you next week with True Transforms.
3: Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
0: I'm Suzanne Geisman and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope.